Well, we did have a good time at the Ark and the Creation Museum uh, these last couple of days. Some great conversations about the nature of the Bible and um, and what we believe and our, our worldviews and how our worldviews are shaped by uh, our faith. Uh, I, I think for a lot of us, the most compelling thing was just the size of the Ark and a whole bunch of practicalities of the Ark that we never thought of, like... Uh, how do you keep a bunch of animals on there? How many animals really were there? Those kind of questions. Um, the, the museum was from a perspective of a very little literal interpretation of scripture. So for them, the earth is young. It's 6,000 years old, not millions of years old. So it's interesting for some of us to see dinosaurs on the ark and kind of wrestle with that perspective of if dinosaurs are around at that time, then they would be on the ark. Um, my kids had a good time. We, we did some zip lining yesterday. I did some family stuff along the way too and, and had a good time. Uh, and I think the real strength of that museum is showing the, the way scripture fits together. And uh, it's something I'm big on. And so I thought they did a really good job of understanding how the fall and how what the Bible says about creation impacts what Jesus comes to do and impacts the, the whole story moving forward. And so... Uh, we had some great conversations about that along the way, too. Uh, looking forward to more bus trips and some different places in the future. So, again, thanks for everybody who went along. Thanks for everybody who went along and still showed up to church today. Uh, they asked me in the bus if I would go ahead and preach my sermon just on the way home. I could get a trial run, and then they wouldn't have to be here this morning. Uh, but I didn't oblige, so they're here. <laughs> Um, I did talk about Noah last week. This week we are in the book of Numbers, which uh, is not just a book of spreadsheets. It's kind of the story of how we got the numbers and why we have the numbers that we have. If you're, if you're following along in your Bible, Genesis, there's a creation that's good, and then there's a fall that's not good. And then God starts this plan to where he's going to have this, this man named Abraham and his family are going to be uh, are going to be this answer to this problem of sin that's set up at the beginning of the Bible. And then the story just keeps going with this family. And Abraham, he has many sons, and uh, his sons have sons. And, and pretty soon you have this family become a, a set of tribes or some a, a becoming sort of a nation. But then in the book of Exodus, there's this crisis, right? There, so God started this story with this man named Abraham, but then... They're in Egypt and not in the promised land that they were supposed to have. And then they're in slavery. What are we going to do? This looks like a real hiccup in God's plan. But God brings them out of the land of Egypt and into the wilderness. Moses leads the people out, and, and that's the book of Exodus. And then he starts to teach them how to live differently. That's the book of Leviticus. So there's all these codes and rules, what you can can't eat, how we're going to worship, how we're going to be different than our neighbors and how we're going to be different than what we were in Egypt. And then we get to the book of Numbers. And in Numbers, they finally get to the promised land, but, but when they see how, how full the promised land is, they, they, they're like, we're, we can't take these people on. They send in 12 spies, but you know what those spies say? Ten of those spies say, we, we cannot do this. We're not able to do this. And so God curses them and says, well, fine, you're not going to go in. It'll be your children that'll go in. You're going to wander around the desert for 40 years. And then after your generation dies out, it'll be the next generation that actually goes into the promised land. 
Well, the people get mad at this. They rebel against God and decide, well, we're just going to go take on some people anyway. We're going to go in and fight anyway. Now, if they didn't think they could do it with God, I don't know why they thought they could do it without God. And it doesn't work out well for them. So they continue then wondering. And after they do get a little defeat of a, of a, a group called the of Arad, then they start to get their confidence back. Okay, maybe we can do this stuff. They get a glimpse of what it might look like to obey God. And then we pick up in Numbers 21. For Mount Or, they sent out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then God sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Israel starts, starts moving their way back around in the desert. And there's nothing to eat in the desert. So God gives them this stuff called manna. And it's described as like bread, but it's not really. The Hebrew word manna is actually a question. It means, what is it? So somebody walked out one morning when they finally got this manna stuff, and they said, what is that? And they said, yes, that's what we'll call it. We're going to call it, what is it? So every morning they get up and they gather the what is it, and then they eat from it, and it nourishes them. But, but it, it's, it's described maybe as not the best stuff. Right, and you can't keep it to the next day. I don't know what you make with what is it, but it's not a lot of options. So the people have to day by day be reliant on God for their sustenance. And they're tired. And they're hungry. And uh, they, they, they start making this long trek around. They take a big detour. How do you do with detours? Are you very patient when you have to get into traffic? When you have to be delayed, we had a couple times on our trip where we got delayed. We had we got stuck in traffic. We went to a restaurant and they didn't have enough servers, so we had to wait. And and now uh, Mitchell Road is closed, so we had to go on like add added the the ten. It was it wasn't very much added to our trip at the end, but at the very end of a trip, man, was it kind of annoying, yeah. right? And then if you get hungry, it's something different, right? You, there's a word for this, and parents know it, but you all should probably know it too. It's called hangry. Okay? Hangry. It's a combination of hungry and angry. And I have witnessed it in my children. They get hangry. I know, okay, we didn't, we, we were a little late on lunch because they're getting hangry. Okay? Israel is walking around in the desert hangry. Okay? So Israel starts complaining. And then they, when they start complaining, they start glorifying the past. Like, if, if only we were back in Egypt. Do you remember Egypt? Like, you mean, let's, let's, oh, if only we were back when we were slaves, when our children were mass murdered to keep our population down, when we were making bricks all day and we were used as objects. Let's go back there, right? That's what sounds really good right now. 
That's hangry. That's, that's the epitome of hangry. Your logic is out the window. But, but at the same time, how many of you know people that are like this? They glorify the good old days that really weren't that good. Old habits, old behaviors, old relationships that they, they're like, oh, maybe I should go back to that. No, that was terrible. You don't remember? The good old days weren't as good as you think they were. And, uh, but, but when you start getting tired, start getting hungry, you start getting, like, like it's that saying, the grass is always greener on the other side. No, it's not. No, it's not. And the grass is not greener in the past than it is right now. We, we, we just sort of look at things poorly sometimes. And so as much as it, like, it pains me to see Israel do this, I can look at my life and see where I've done this. Where uh, I've questioned what God is doing right now and longed for something else. Uh, not being thankful for what I have. Despising what I have now for something I used to have that really wasn't that good to begin with. So the people start complaining, which they do a lot in the Bible. Uh, but, but normally it's aimed at Moses. Okay? Normally it's the leader. Moses, what are you doing? Moses. I, I saw a comic of this, um, which, which was the Moses is leading all the people, and uh, you can see the bubbles of speech over the... And it's like, I'm tired. Are we there yet? I don't think this guy knows where we're going. And Moses turns back to the people and says, I will turn this exodus around. Right? There's like this complaining that's going on. It's normally aimed at Moses, but, but yet here, they start to really complain against God. Like, God, I don't, I don't want this... What is it? This manna stuff. I really let's let's. Why did you even take us out of slavery? Let's go back there. In other words, God, what you've given me now is worse than the slavery I used to be in. So the Lord sends these fiery serpents. Now, now we're not sure what this word fiery really means. Okay, uh, I, I don't think they're serpents made of fire, right? I think this is a uh, like a, kind of a poetic way of either saying that maybe they're of a reddish, orangish color. Or a lot of scholars have looked at this and said maybe they're called fiery serpents because of the burning sensation that you would get from the venom from these snakes, right? Um, and, a, and a lot of people who have been bit by venomous snakes describe it as a real burning. Perhaps that works also as a symbol for the anger of God, that his anger is burning, his fiery anger against the people. His righteous anger, right? Like, how dare you, after I got you out of Egypt ask to go back. I mean, do you, do you see the seriousness of this direct rebellion against God that uh, these people are going through? So, so the people being bit by snakes go to Moses and repent. They confess that they've done the wrong thing and they ask Moses to talk to God and get rid of these snakes. So Moses prays, but I want you to notice something really important in the text is that the snakes don't go away. That actually God does not give the people what they want. The, the snakes remain. But what God does is provide an answer for the snakes. He does not spare them from the consequences of their sin completely. The serpents remain, maybe as a, as a reminder of their rebellion, or maybe, maybe as a reminder of God's grace, so that they can look to God for their healing and for their wholeness, not to Egypt and not to their past, but really look to God. So God instructs Moses to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole in the middle of the camp. Now, we don't know how big this thing would have been, but we know the camp was big. So, so you got to think about that. If, if people got to see it from the camp, it's probably pretty big. 
And so if people would get bit, they could look at this serpent and they would live. They would be healed. Now the serpent is an interesting symbol in the ancient times. It is definitely a symbol of evil. And a lot of you would look at snakes and say that they're evil, right? They, they, they move funny. And so snakes, serpents, dragons, those are always sort of negative creatures in cultures. But at the same time, snakes do something that, that, that also made them a symbol of healing, which is that they, they shed their skin. In other words, what a, what a snake does, you can find snake skins. What a snake does is, is they, they actually form a layer of new skin underneath of their old skin. And then they get a fluid in between the skins, and then eventually they shed the skin. They actually start at their nose, and they, they open it up, and then they peel it off of them. So if you ever find a snake skin, it's actually inside out because of the way they pulled through it. And uh, they, so they, they replenish themselves. They have new skin. And actually, if a snake gets injured, after, after a little while, a couple sheds, normally they heal themselves. Snakes are pretty resilient in terms of what they can survive. And so, yes, snakes are a symbol of, of, uh, of evil, a symbol of here, right, God's judgment. But they're also a symbol of healing. There's actually another story in Greek mythology about a man named Asclep- Asclepius. Asclepius had a rod with a snake on it and uh, was used to heal uh, he was he is the Greek god of healing. Uh, not to be confused, by the way, with a staff that has two snakes on it. That's actually the, the staff of the god Hermes, and sometimes accidentally gets put on medical stuff by people that don't know what they're doing. But normally, a, the medical symbol, as you can see it in your bulletin, is a rod with a snake on it, which is typically associated with the god uh, Asclepius. There's a lot of debate about which story comes first. And there are a number of scholars that actually think that maybe the Greeks, in trading with the Jewish people, had heard this story of Moses, and that this is the original story behind that symbol. And think about that symbol. When I, when I put it in the bulletin, you have seen that symbol before, right? I mean, that's a symbol. It, it's uh, a, the symbol of the American Medical Association. It's on a lot of ambulances. It's uh, on the flag of the uh, World Health Organization. Okay, that, that symbol of a snake is still a symbol of healing to this day. So that still to this day, when you go see that symbol, you know you can find health there. And you know that. Like, even to this day, you know that with that symbol on the side of an ambulance. Or you can follow a sign to a hospital because you see that. Or you see it on a logo and you can tell that's part of a health organization. It was like that for Israel. This, this staff actually stuck around until in 2 Kings 2, King Hezekiah destroyed it because people were worshiping it as a false idol. But for those original Israelites, it was a symbol of peace, of wholeness. But you know what you do when you get bit? You know what you do when things are bad? You look to that staff as a symbol and God brings healing. Now that symbol actually shows up again in the New Testament. Jesus is talking to this man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is this rabbi and this teacher of teachers, kind of a big deal teacher. And, but he doesn't want to be seen talking to Jesus in public. But he's really curious about who Jesus is and how he can find new life. And so he goes to Jesus in the middle of the night. Okay, And then in John 3, John, Jesus tells him that he has to be born again. And he's using all this language. And then let me pick up in 
verse 9. John 3, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I've told you earthly things, and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus tells Nicodemus that he's, 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 he's basically hinting that I'm from God. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Messiah that was promised. And I have truth that you seem to not have and not understand. And that part of that truth is that just like Moses raised up, lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man is going to have to be lifted up. And that phrase, lifted up, is the phrase they would use for being crucified. Okay? And, and, um, and actually there's, there's some evidence and some people have suggested that it was the, it was the quick term for being crucified. Right? Uh, just like you could say, you could say someone got got hung, like a short version of uh, got uh, you know got hung from a tree, or you might say someone got the chair, right? They would say someone got lifted up, and so the, the, Jesus is saying the Son of Man is going to have to be crucified, and, and and Nicodemus he can't imagine a Messiah, the coming one, the Son of Man getting lifted up on a cross. That is not the one that he's expecting. But if you look at the Moses story, you might start to think, well, actually, I could see how a saving one would have to be lifted up. But think about the parallels Jesus is drawing. Sinning people who rebel against God and are feeling his righteous anger can look on Jesus and be saved. They can look to Jesus and find healing. This is a message of wholeness. You can be born again. You can have new life. What, you, what do you have to do to have it? Look to the cross. Pick your eyes up in the camp and look at Jesus. Eternal life comes from the, for those who see Jesus. They'll look up from their craziness of their life and their world and look to him as Savior and Lord. So where are you complaining? Where are you longing for a past that wasn't as good as you seem to remember it? Where are the, what are those bad habits you, you, you sometimes dream of going back to? Where are you impatient with God's timing and God's purpose and God's plan? Where are you despising what God has you doing right now and longing for the past rather than accepting that this is where God has you now? The message of this text is stop complaining. Don't accuse God or your pastor or another leader or another person in your life. Don't go accusing. Pick your head up. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus for healing. Look to Jesus for wholeness. That's where new life comes from. It comes from the cross. One of the great ways that we remember that is through communion, right? What does Paul say about communion? That we're showing forth the Lord's death till we come again. Showing forth. That, that's not a lot like looking at the cross. It's a lot like looking up. The communion table, that's the place where we look up, where we see what Jesus has done for us, and we find healing, we find wholeness, and we find strength to come on for the future. That is 
what we do here at communion. In fact, some traditions, I've always loved this, and I've done this a couple of times too, actually serve communion on mirrors. I love the imagery of this. Because if communion is served on mirrors, then when you look down at communion, where are you also looking? Up. You look down, but what you're actually doing is looking up. And I think that's a great way to understand what Calvin thought happened at communion. That there's a real presence that somehow, even though we're doing this, uh, even though we're going to have communion here, you're, you're, you're looking up. And doesn't that have a cool image now when you think about this bronze serpent? That as we have communion, we're looking up to the cross. We're remembering what Christ has done for us. And we are finding healing and wholeness through that.